Starting in verse 5 of Matthew 18, God's word says this, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And that is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We rejoice in the fact that you have such a tender heart for the vulnerable, for the susceptible, for children, for those that stray. And God, would we this morning, by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, have a similar heart. Teach us this morning, Lord, what it is to care for and to protect and, and to receive a child, what it means to go after that strange sheep. And Lord, uh, warn us this morning about the peril of stumbling blocks. And Lord, we're confident that you're going to do your good work this morning. You're the author of your word. You are the word of God. Reveal yourself now in glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name's Sean. I coordinate the community groups here at uh, Reality. Now, last week, Kevin reminded us that Jesus paid it all so that we might enjoy entrance into his kingdom as children. The title of this message this morning is Don't Stumble the Susceptible. Don't stumble the susceptible. And we're going to consider four points this morning. Number one, don't stumble the susceptible, rather receive them. Number two, don't stumble the susceptible, rather protect them. Don't stumble yourself, rather deal ruthlessly with your sin. And number four, don't stumble yourself, for God is calling you to pursue the susceptible and bring them back. Now, Jesus is now finds himself in retreat with the 12 disciples, and he's really dedicating um, a large amount of time and space to really invest in these 12. In fact, it covers uh, chapters 14 through 19, and he's teaching the disciples what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And here in chapter 18 of Matthew is a dis discourse on the childlikeness of the believer, how we're called to be childlike. And I'm using the adjective this morning, susceptible. 
And we're going to define susceptible as vulnerable, impressionable, and those prone to stray. John Piper says this regarding children. Children are the litmus paper to expose the presence of pride. How we deal with children is a signal of our fellowship with God. Now remember, the disciples were constantly bickering and fighting and arguing and debating about the greatest. And that's how chapter 18 begins with, right? Who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? And remember, the disciples were so focused on a literal kingdom. Their idea of the kingdom of heaven was having Caesar dethroned, having Rome defeated, and that the, the disciples, the Jewish people, would be top dog. So they were arguing and debating about the greatest, which, caused, which led to bitterness, rivalry, ambition, pride, envy, and jealousy. So Jesus, the master teacher, calls the child to himself, and the child obeys him and comes, <laughs> and he uses this child as an illustration, right? Now, what, did it, what is it about a child? Well, children are dependent, they're powerless, they're humble, and they're weak. And Jesus is intimately concerned about them. Now, in Jewish culture, children were not empowered. So what Jesus is teaching and what he is declaring is something radical, right? So our first point is we're called to receive children. We're not to stumble them, rather we're to receive them. And anyone who receives a child in his name receives Jesus himself. To receive a child is to receive Christ, and it's impossible to separate the Lord from his people. In Zechariah chapter 2 it says, For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. To touch a child, either in a benevolent way or in an aggressive way, has, has a direct impact on God because a child is the apple of his eye. And Jesus is very zealous and protective of children. And we are commanded to receive them. We are called upon to protect them and care for them and to invest in them. And I cannot think of any enterprise in the church today more valuable than investing in children. That's why we place such a high value in our church life here at Reality regarding kids' ministry, regarding youth ministry, camps, and the like. In the early 1800s, there was a Scottish pastor from a local village who was discouraged by the lack of fruit in his church. In fact, the deacons were encouraging him to step down as pastor of that church because in one calendar year, there was not even one new convert. Now, the pastor responded, well, there has been one new convert, wee Bobby, an adolescent. But the deacons quickly dismissed wee Bobby as anything significant. Now, wee Bobby, wee, W-E-E, which is, uh, I guess, a Scottish colloquialism, right? Wee Bobby was Bobby Moffat, who became Dr. Robert Moffat, a missionary. 
In fact, in his early teens at a missions conference, when the offering plate came by, Bobby asked the usher to put the plate on the ground, and then he placed his two feet on top of the plate. And he said, I have nothing else to give but myself. Maybe we should get some 80-gallon uh, offering bags here at church. It would be awesome to see people jump in up and say, I don't have anything, but I'm ready to serve Christ like that. Robert Moffat served in South Africa for 52 years. And Robert Moffat became the father-in-law of David Livingstone. You might have heard of him, who was a famous missionary in Africa. So you who teach Sunday school, maybe you are teaching a wee Bobby Moffat. There may not be great notoriety nor applause, but what an extraordinary opportunity to receive a child, investing in children's ministry. Or maybe it's reaching out to those that are susceptible or vulnerable in your own neighborhood. But the word receive in the original has another meaning, which I find extraordinary. It has the idea of receiving a child into one's family to make him or her one's own. Now, we have several families here at uh, Reality Ventura who foster children. We have some who are in the process of adopting and, and some that have indeed adopted children. And Jesus is saying that we are receiving him when we receive children in our home. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. And this word visit means to look upon in order to help, to benefit, to provide for. Indeed, it's a calling, right? Not everyone's called to foster or to adopt, But it's not just a calling for individuals. It's really a community-type call. Your life is not your own. We have been adopted into the family of God. Therefore, we are called to be stewards of the life the Lord has given us. And for those that foster, for those that have adopted children, they understand parenting isn't about ownership. It's about stewardship. So I have to ask myself the question, how am I engaging in this calling? And like I said, it may not be that you are called to foster or to adopt, but we should rally around those who want to adopt like we would if someone has a desire to go to the mission field. It's a costly thing. Now, the, the, the theme of this message is not adoption, but taking advantage of this. And we just had this beautiful uh, invitation to this uh, foster summit, right, in a couple of weeks' time. I would invite you, and I invite myself to pray about this. How could we involve or maybe rally around or come alongside those that feel called to foster or to adopt Now, in verse 10 of our section here in Matthew, Jesus promises special protection for these precious ones. He says, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continue to see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We know in Scripture that angels in heaven are ministering, ministering spirits 
sent to serve God's people, especially those that are vulnerable or susceptible. These angels behold the face of God the Father and are ready to act in order to protect and care for these little ones. The idea of guardian angels comes from this verse. Now, in the time of Christ, there was lots of Jewish superstitions regarding angels. For instance, it was believed that when you died, your angel would appear to your loved ones after your death to let them know that you had gone. And we see this actually in Acts chapter 12. You'll remember the story when Peter was placed in prison, remember? And the church was praying for his release, for his salvation. And God miraculously heard that prayer, sent an angel, released Peter. And Peter returned to his community group there where they were praying, remember? And he knocked on the door. And this young gal named Rhoda heard that it was the voice of Peter. And she ran back and said, it's Peter! And this community group full of the Holy Spirit of great faith, they said to Rhoda, you are out of your mind. It must be his angel. It must be his angel. So that was the, the common thought amongst the Jewish people at that time. Now, whether every child has a personal angel or not, I don't know. But Jesus definitely is aware of these precious children and will dispatch his children on special assignment to care for these little ones when they are neglected. That's the heart of our God. Point number two, don't stumble the susceptible, rather protect them. In verse six, he warns of the danger of causing a child to sin. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, Thou shalt not cause the land to sin. There's a cause-effect relationship we have in the world. Our actions can impact not only other people, but the very environment in which we live. Not only are you not to sin, you are not to cause someone else to sin. And Jesus, Jesus uses the word stumble, right? Stumbling block. Don't stumble. It's the Greek word scandalon, where we get our word Scandal, that's right. And the idea of uh, scandalon is the idea of, of trapping a person or catching someone in a trap in order to make them stumble into evil, resulting in shame or public embarrassment. What causes children to stumble today? Well, we have to start in the home. We have to start as parents, right? We have to ask ourselves the question, are we stumbling our children? How do we stumble our children? And I just wrote down three points here. Number one, when we exasperate them, frustrate them, or overprotect them. Number two, when we favor one child over another, making them envious or jealous. Remember Jacob there in the scripture, right? He had 12 sons with four different women. And there was extreme extreme upheaval and division in his family because he had his favorites, right? He had Joseph and he had Benjamin. And there was extraordinary strife. In fact, his brothers wanted to kill Joseph. You remember the story. Number three, making children feel like that they are a nuisance or a problem. That they, making them feel that they're in the way, using bitter or angry words to cut them down. This is the way we stumble children. We need to avoid this. 
Verse 10 tells us, do not despise one of these little ones. These little ones, not only children, but all Christians who are childlike in their faith. And next week, we're actually going to be talking more about this, but two points here regarding despising children. It means looking with indifference on those Christians who have fallen, and number two, rejecting those who confront us in our sinfulness. Now, we have the responsibility of leading them rightly as parents, as well as a church we are called to guide them rightly. And there are grievous consequences for stumbling a vulnerable one. God views it in this way. He says, it's better to take a millstone. Not a millstone, but a millstone, right? Used for grinding grain, several feet in circumference, weighing several hundred hundred pounds that would be pulled by a mule, right? Take that millstone, tie it around your neck, and throw yourself off the pier. Now, the Jews didn't drown people for any kind of crime. It was seen as horrific, unimaginable punishment. Being drowned was something that the Romans practiced, not the Jews, because it was so horrible. But Jesus is saying, and no doubt it's hyperbole, but he's saying it's better off dead with the worst kind of death imaginable than to stumble a child. It's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. So instead of stumbling children, we're called to protect them and to care for them. How do we do this? Number number one, by teaching them. Teaching children. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall teach them diligently, them referring to the oracles of God, the Word of God, uh, teaching them diligently to your sons and, and, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We protect children when we teach them about God. When our children know about God's love, God's protection, God's favorability, God's grace and mercy in their lives. That's how we protect them, that our children would know God, right? Number two, when we commend to them the works of God in Psalm 145, it says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So one generation to another shall praise, commending the attributes of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God. That's what we're called to do, to praise God. We just don't praise God on Sunday mornings when we have a guitar and when we have a band. We praise God hopefully every day of the week. We're commending and praising and articulating His goodness and favorability in our lives. And our children need to see that, that we are worshipers that we worship in spirit and truth. And number three, we're called upon to declare God's faithfulness. By the way, God is faithful, right? God has been faithful, and He will continue to be faithful. In Isaiah chapter 38, it says that a father tells his sons about your faithfulness, about God's faithfulness. That would mean that 
There should be some evidence, right? Well, we've been praying for this and God answered. Look how the many prayers throughout our lives God has answered, right? A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. So we're called upon to teach and to commend and to declare. Then Jesus, the master teacher, extends this warning to the world. He's just, he's talking to 12 disciples, right? He's got a baby maybe on his on his leg there, right on his lap, and he's teaching them the importance of being childlike in their faith. That unless they convert and be like a child, they will not see, they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the great, greatest in the kingdom is going to be like a child, humble like a child, right? But from there, Jesus uses his platform to say, you know, by the way, woe to the world, to the unbelieving world, to the pagan world, to the depraved world. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. That same word, scandalon, that produces that public shame and embarrassment. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. There will be, and we should find certain comfort in this, there will be universal judgment and a day of reckoning for these stumbling blocks. Such things, Jesus says, must come. Why? Because of sin and sinners. Jesus took, or God took the enormous risk in giving us free will. That's why our world's so jacked up. We're not robots. We choose to love. We choose to follow Christ, right? And so uh, these stumbling blocks come because men and women choose to turn their back on God. They choose to honor and serve Him. And that's why we find ourselves surrounded by stumbling blocks. And individuals will be held accountable. He says, woe, which means impending doom, condemnation, the wrath of God, cursed be you, due to stumbling blocks. So we're to receive children. We're to protect and care for children. And then he deals with our hearts. He deals with us individually. And you can just notice rapid fire imperatives and exhortations here. These aren't suggestions. Jesus is commanding. He's saying, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is the way you will behave, right? The third point, don't stumble yourself. Rather, deal ruthlessly with your sin. Starting in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast in the fiery hell. Wow. We are called upon here to examine ourselves. We must take sin very seriously. It was sin that put Jesus on the cross. Or better said, it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. I think in our Christian culture, we can take sin very lightly. Oh, it's just a little, just a little thing. I was raised up as a Catholic, you know, and they would divide between mortal sins and venial sins, right? The venial sins are just the little slip-ups, you know. And the mortal sins are the grave things. Well, God makes no distinction. Sin is sin. 
And of course, this is hyperbole. You know, he's not, he's not asking us to do this literally. Imagine how our church would look if we dealt with sin like that. We'd all be crippled and lame, wouldn't we? And one-eyed eyed person, you know. So it's not a physical issue. It's a heart issue. But that's how drastic we need to, uh, how ruthless we need to be regarding our own personal sin. It's interesting when uh, in Matthew chapter 16, we discussed a couple weeks ago, when Jesus was building his church, right? And Peter made that extraordinary declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good job, Peter. You know, this, this didn't come from man. God revealed this from you. And then Jesus began to declare that how he was going to go to Jerusalem and be scourged and beaten and then put on a cross. He was going to die and then he was going to rise from the dead. And remember Peter's response, no way, Jose. Ain't going to happen to you, Lord. And what was Jesus' words? Good job. Thanks for having my back, Peter. No, he said, get behind me, Satan. He's talking to Peter, the rock man, right? You're no longer Simon. You're Peter. Petros, this little rock, but upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church, right? Get behind me, Satan. Notice, you are a stumbling block to me. Peter, the rock man who made this beautiful declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In one moment, and a few minutes later, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. The same word, scandalon. You are trying to trap me. You, tr- you are trying to deviate me from the plan of my Father. Jesus is the only baby born in the history of the world with the sole purpose of dying. And Jesus knew that. He knew that that was the call of God in his life. And Peter was stumbling him. He was trying to deviate from fulfilling his call. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Again, Peter had this grandiose thought of this kingdom overthrowing Caesar and the Romans and being top dog. But this is serious stuff as Christians, right? This verse, verses 8 and 9, is very direct. And there's no escape. And we need to ask ourselves, and I need to ask myself, are you flirting with sin Are you harboring, hiding, or justifying sin? Are you looking for sin? What in your life needs to be gouged out or cut off? What have you allowed to infiltrate your heart? Is there a relationship, a device, a substance, maybe unforgiveness, that needs to be removed from your life? Don't negotiate with sin. Don't reason with it. Gouge it out. Do something radical. On Tuesday nights, we have a support group that meets here at the church called Radical Recovery. It's a group for those battling addictions. And when I was talking to one of the leaders the other day about just their philosophy and how they would even approach this verse, verses 8 and 9, about your foot, the stumbling blocks, and gouging. And he said, absolutely. When you're dealing with addictions, it's a matter of life and death. You just cannot flirt. You cannot partner. You just can't be lax. You have to be radical. You have to flee. You have to run. 
But at the same time, radical recovery would encourage us by saying, keep getting up. Don't give up. Reach out. Jesus is right there. Come on back. We'll help. We'll walk with you. When you're tempted, you can give us a call. We'll point you to Christ. What a blessing it is to know that there's brothers and sisters out there that want to help, that want to reach out, that want to love us, that want to help us with our stumbling blocks. Now you notice in these verses, it talks about We don't like to talk about hell at the church. No one likes to talk about hell, right? We all believe in heaven, right? And if you would ask an interview and do a poll regarding the, our society, everyone believes in heaven. Everyone believes that they're going to go to heaven. I wish that was true. You know, Jesus spoke of hell more than he did of heaven. Unrepentant sinners go to hell. Oh, but the grace of God. We were all walking towards hell. It's just the grace and mercy of God. We can't boast. There was nothing innately beautiful in us that provoked God to love us or to rescue us or to snatch us out of the flames. It's just His mercy and grace. That's our boast. That's our testimony. It was nothing that we did, our great articulation, the way we pray, the way we receive Christ. It was in spite of us God saved us, really. But hell's a real place. And that's why he exhorted the disciples, you need and we need to change and be childlike in order to enter in the kingdom of heaven. We need to get rid of the source, the conduit, or medium of sin in our lives. Now, though Jesus spoke frequently of hell, nonetheless, he doesn't want anyone to go there. We should find great comfort in that. Jesus finds zero pleasure in the thought that someone would actually go to hell. And that's what we have in verse 11 of our section of Matthew 18. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. That is the heart of God. That is the mission of God, to save that which is lost. Now, some of you might have a Bible that doesn't contain verse 11. Now, you notice in the NASB that I'm using this morning, there's like brackets around that verse. And all that means is this particular verse is not found in the oldest of manuscripts. But the verse is, we find that same verse in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. So I just share that to you Bible students that are interested. Why are there brackets around that verse? But we know that he's come to save that which is lost. Sin stumbles us. It impedes us from what God is calling us to do. And that's why we come to the fourth point of this sermon. Don't stumble yourself, for God is calling you to pursue the susceptible and bring them back. Bring them back to the fold. Verse 12, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. I love the teaching style of of Jesus. Just with this rhetorical question, what do you think? 
After all that's been said, this is heavy material, right? He's talking about children. He's talking about stumbling blocks. He's talking about gouging and plucking out. And then after all that, he says, so what do you guys think about this? It's not enough just to receive this message or to hear it. We need to engage with this message. We need to seek to put it into practice. This is a great community group question. What do you think? What do you think about this? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this message this morning? In Matthew 17, Jesus said a similar thing when they were talking about the temple tax last week, remember, with, with Kevin. And Jesus said in verse 25 of Matthew 17, what do you think, Simon? What do you think about this? You know, sin is such a ripoff. God has put eternity into our hearts, and he invites us to participate into his kingdom. And he wants us to engage with him. And when we have a stumbling block in our life, that impedes us from realizing all that God has for us. Now, there was a great contrast between the Pharisees and scribes and Jesus. The Pharisees despised the lowly, the insignificant, the uneducated. They crushed them. They stomped on those kinds of people. In Luke chapter 10, it says that the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Christ is one with his little ones. When you look down on one of these, no matter how lowly, how humble, you look down on Jesus Christ. Jesus came for the sake of that lowly one and he purchased that lowly one with his precious blood. When I became a Christian in the 70s, I was asked by a friend. He said, Brother, uh, what is your life verse? I said, life verse? What, what's that? He goes, well, it's a verse that the Lord kind of puts on your heart. He kind of, out of Scripture, he kind of gives you a verse. And you kind of base your life on that. It's kind of like God's calling or desire or destiny for you. So I prayed, and God did give me a verse out of Isaiah 42, talking about Jesus, you know, that he's not going to shout or cry out nor have his voice heard in the streets. And then it says there, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, and in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And I've always loved this verse because it really shares and reveals to us the heart of Jesus who goes after the vulnerable, who goes after the susceptible, who receives the child, who protects and cares for the little ones. It says that a bruise, well, first of all, it says that he will not shout or cry out or make his voice heard in the streets. What does that mean? Jesus, being God in the flesh, was not a self-promoter. He didn't have this big campaign, Jesus of Nazareth International Ministries, when he came to town. In fact, he tried to hide. Shh, don't tell anyone. That was his methodology for evangelism. Don't tell anyone. Extraordinarily, he wasn't a self-promoter. In fact, his half-brothers got really upset with him. You remember in John chapter 6. They said, listen, anyone who thinks that they're you know, something special, doesn't do these signs and wonders in secret. 
Go out in public. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the capital city during this festival, right? And do your miracles in front of your disciples there. And then it says that very sad verse there in John 6, that even his brothers, even his half-brothers and half-sisters did not believe in him. So Jesus was never a self-promoter. He avoided the, the limelight, right? And then it tells us really what he's about there in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break. In Palestine, reeds were so commonplace. On every, on every inch of the, the, that land, you'll find reeds, kind of like that bamboo, right? Those bamboo shoots that, that flourish in the marshes. Now, reeds were, had several different uses in biblical times. Reeds were used as measuring sticks, right? They would grow up to 12 feet in length. And they would use a reed, right, to measure. Now, if that reed was broken or cracked or bent, you guys that are contractors, if you have a tape measure that is broken or ripped, you, you can't measure. You don't, won't have a, a true reading, right? Also, reeds were used as musical instruments. So if that reed was cracked or crushed or broken, it wouldn't be able to produce beautiful music. Now, again, reeds were dime a dozen. Wherever you went, you would find a reed. So a cracked reed, just throw it away and get another one. That's not the heart of Jesus. That's not the heart of God. He sees the bruised reed. He sees the cracked reed. He says, I could do something with this. Ah, Jesus, just throw it away. No, 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 no. I'm going to take that cracked reed. I'm going to take that bruised reed and bring healing and remedy and restoration and healing. That's the heart of your Savior. That's the heart of my Savior. That's the heart of Jesus. What the world despises and says is useless, throw it away. Jesus says, I can do something extraordinary through this bruised reed. Then a smoldering wick, right? Well, this wick would be attached to something to produce a fire, a fire that brings comfort and warmth and illumination. But a smoldering wick really speaks of more smoke than fire. Well, let's just extinguish it. It's not used, you know, the smoke is, you know, getting in my nostrils and it's, I'm uncomfortable around it, right? That's not the heart of Jesus. He's going to fan into flame that smoldering wick. Again, what the world says is useless, is nauseous, and unpleasant. God says, I have a plan. I can use that smoldering wick. That's the, that's the God you serve. That's the God I serve. That's the heart of Christ. I have this quote here. The weak and the helpless, the powerless, those destroyed by sin and suffering, those bent without care, those lacking resources, those that the world pushes aside and tramples and despises and crushes and treats with contempt. The Lord loves and gathers the broken people to his heart. He heals the sick. He raises the outcasts. He cheers the fearful. He strengthens the doubters. He feeds the hungry, forgives the sinners. Not only that, he takes on their sorrow, takes on their woes, takes on their pain, and exchanges it with his love. The heart of God for the susceptible. 
And he ends with this beautiful parable about the shepherd and the sheep. The shepherd is so acquainted with the sheep that he would miss the presence of one of them because of its uniqueness. It's not because the the loving shepherd would do a head count. Oh, okay, I've only got 98, two are missing, or I've only got 99, one's missing. He would know one sheep is missing because of its uniqueness. Now, my understanding that in prison they do head counts, right? To make sure no one's escaped. Well, Jesus is not a warden of a prison. He's a loving shepherd. And that's why we sang that song, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is the most common psalm used in a, in a wake or in a funeral, isn't it? Psalm 23. But do you realize that David wrote the psalm when he was very much alive? It's not just to be reserved for when we leave this planet. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. If you have the shepherd, you have everything you need. That's what he's saying there. And that shepherd knows every sheep, every little idiosyncrasy, every little quirk, because the shepherd would inspect them every night as they were taken in to the fold. He loves the susceptible ones. He came to rescue them. Now, in Luke's gospel, it uses the same parable, but talking about the unbelievers. And you remember that famous verse, verse 7, I tell you then the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In our parable here in Matthew 18, it's talking about believers. It's talking about the Christian who strays from the flock. And Jesus leaves the 99 on the mountain and goes after and searches for that one vulnerable, straying sheep. In Israel, there were plenty of valleys and hills and ledges and precipices. And the shepherds became experts in tracking lost sheep. Now, what would a shepherd do once he finds his lost sheep? He would wrap it by his legs around the neck of the shepherd. And there would be great exuberance and joy because he had found the lost sheep. Remember in a few previous verses, we talked about the millstone and putting it around your neck and jumping off the pier? What a beautiful contrast of the loving shepherd taking that sheep, that lost sheep, and putting its feet around his neck and carrying him back home to the fold. And maybe this morning you are a strange, susceptible sheep. Allow me to say to you that Jesus loves you as if you were the only one. His Father would have sent His Son if you were the only one. That's the way Jesus cares for you. It's a care that seeks, a care that forgives. It's a restorative care to bring you back into the fold. There are no beatings or punishments, only great rejoicing. There's no contempt, no grudges. He rejoices more over the one that comes back than that the one that stays. So Jesus seeks out and pursues the susceptible, and we are called to do the same. How can we participate with Jesus in pursuing his lost sheep? And these are my final three points. Hebrews chapter 3, the author says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, 
so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another day by day. That's one of the reasons we congregate. We're here this morning to encourage one another. That's why we have men's groups and women's groups and flourish groups and youth groups and kids groups so we can encourage one another. Point number two, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Notice here, verse 25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we pursue lost sheep when we gently correct those in opposition. The final verse here in 1 Peter chapter 3. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. To give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Once again, we see the word, with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness, wooing, making a defense, giving biblical uh, data, biblical verses, biblical principles and truth to bring back people to the fold. Let me close with these uh, three reflective questions for us this morning. What is your attitude towards the susceptible? How are you receiving them? Have you prayerfully considered volunteering in kids' ministry or reaching out to neighborhood kids? What about fostering or adopting? Number two, is there a stumbling block in your life? What specifically will you do to cut it off or pluck it out? And number three, do you know someone who has strayed? Pray for him or her by name. Pursue him and bring him back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you as a loving, wonderful Savior. Thank you, Lord, you're so willing to leave the 99 and go after that one lost, strained, vulnerable, susceptible sheep. And many of us have that testimony. We were once that strained sheep. And in your benevolence and love and grace and mercy, you were willing to come down and to pursue us and to carry us on your shoulders back to the fold. Lord God, I thank you for your word this morning. I confess, Lord, it's a heavy word. And I pray you would speak life to each heart. Help us to be doers of your word and not merely hearers that, that delude themselves. We don't want to delude ourselves, God. We want to be sober in, in, in mind and spirit. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit, even now, is drawing hearts. We pray we would respond, Lord. We thank you for the carpets that we have here in front of us and communion to remember your death and resurrection, the fact you went to the cross to make us whole, to cleanse us from all our sins, God. I pray that many would respond this morning by going to the carpets. Lord, I thank you for the prayer team on my left and right that you have strategically placed that would be willing to pray as we would consider these topics about how, what it means to receive a child in my life. Maybe it is to reach out to those susceptible ones in my neighborhood. Maybe it's being involved in kids' ministry or even adopting or fostering a child. God, if it be, may it be so, Lord. Do that work. 
And we just love you so much, God, for your grace and mercy. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.